Welcome to Our Kids in Mind. I'm Jane Gilmore. And I'm Bettina Honan. Bettina and I wrote The Incredible Teenage Brain Book because we wanted to make the neuroscience accessible to adults supporting teens so that the young people in their care could have a better future. We firmly believe in the power of conversation. As Dan Siegel said, conversation is a sorting space for ideas. And with that in mind, we've reached out to other JKP authors and put our shared passion for young people's well-being at the heart of our conversation. In each podcast episode, as we marinate in our guests' expertise, we build bridges between our respective books and debate different approaches. So join our conversation as we dip into some incredible books about young people. And today I'm so excited to introduce Pookie Knight-Smith. Pookie is a child mental health specialist, the author of many books. She's the vice chair of the Children and Young People's Mental Health Coalition. She's a prolific keynote speaker. She has a YouTube channel, a podcast, and is a source of continuing professional development for many educators in the UK and overseas. Her recent book, The Mentally Healthy Schools Workbook, is an incredible resource for schools. So pleased that you could join us today, Pookie, and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a yeah, real delight to be able to talk to you both. And I always love the chance to kind of explore and pick apart ideas and learn from other people too. So thank you. So just to start with, in our Teenage Brain book, we felt really passionately about sharing the neuroscience with adults caring for teens so that they could kind of improve the environment for young people in their care. So I wonder if you could maybe just start by saying a little about your latest book, The Mentally Healthy Schools Workbook, and, and a bit about why you wrote this book specifically. Yeah, it's a really it's a really good question. I think it's the the book that um, has possibly had the most impact um, of of the books that I've written. So the Mentally Healthy Schools Workbook is essentially a really really practical guide um, for schools who want to support the mental health and well being of the the children, uh, their families, and their staff as well. And it was inspired really by my work with Leeds Beckett University, leading the um, school mental health awards. So I coached a lot of schools through that process and had done lots of other kind of ad hoc work looking at the whole school approach. And um, as part of that work and part of my wider work, I had been asked to do again and again and again um, a particular keynote, which was my kind of litmus test um, for mentally healthy schools. And this was because having worked with so many schools, I kind of felt like I can kind of walk in and quite quickly... I get a feel for if this is a school where like mental health is kind of at the heart of things and it's a good kind of happy, warm place to be or not. And I'm a scientist at heart and I figured, well, if I can do that, and I found that rarely did I get that kind of initial assumption wrong. Um, if I could do that, that there was clearly some actual stuff going on in my head and I needed to enable others to ask those same questions of themselves. So the Mentally Healthy School Workbook just kind of does that. It, it looks at the core themes that make for a mentally healthy school and then explore what we can do to enable those things to kind of happen. Wonderful. And it's so practical. I think it covers all so many important areas, but it's very practical. You have practical steps. You have ideas to cherry pick from action plans. And there are places where people can reflect and think about what they're doing right and not so well. I, I just think it's such an incredible resource. 
well done you that's so good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you it was it was hard work to write actually and was so it? The, because I know that the two of you work together collaboratively um, and I'm very collaborative in my work but not usually in my writing so I normally kind of write on my own and get my head down and get on with it um, but the Mentally Healthy Schools workbook I felt really strongly that I wanted to include lots of case studies and bring in the voices of so many wonderful schools and settings that I'd worked with mm-hmm. um, I've discovered how hard it is to get people to write and formulate their ideas in a way that you can actually utilize that that was hard work Uh, totally worth it but yeah really hard work yeah the case studies are important aren't they I think they really bring a book alive Um, and it's so great to get people from different areas and different types of schools I love you know that inclusion and it's interesting I mean I think as you're saying the the idea of of drawing together material from the real world is so important and it really you know as I was reading the book it really it really does help illustrate the points beautifully but it does add an extra challenge and that's you know but it's worth it as you say I think it's it, it, it's it um, certainly shows in the book I have another question for you Pookie um, because I, I noticed in the book you talk about the importance of keeping parents involved to help achieving a mentally healthy school and you say it's not us and them you know this is a this is a partnership um we wrote the teenage brain book for both parents and teachers and sometimes we found that a bit of a challenge because of course the remit for parents and teachers is different as it should be and school settings as compared to home settings are different so from your perspective, and perhaps you're drawing on your extensive bibliography, because of course you've written about anxiety, eating disorders, self-harm, and so on. How would you describe some of the differences and similarities in presentation in mental health in the home as compared to the school setting? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, yeah, that's a massive question. And mm. I think, first of all, just backpedaling slightly in terms of those different and kind of competing audiences, that's something that my thoughts on have evolved quite a lot during the course of the pandemic so bringing a lot of learning online and bringing people together I've often been surprised by the different voices in the room and how that once you look to cater for those multiple audiences and you enable those bridges to be built how that brings real strength so some of my favorite sessions that I've run I've had you know a social worker a doctor a head teacher a teaching assistant a parent or carer all together um, contributing to that conversation and the way that I've had to kind of change my thinking around that really is actually just to take everything back to looking at it through the lens of the child Um, and so everything I do has this kind of completely child-centered approach I try to use the language that makes sense to the child I try to think about the child's motivations um, and what these different things mean for them in terms of kind of presentation and the difference perhaps between home and school I think a key difference is that when I'm talking to adults in the home um, often they've got much less experience of children in the round but obviously much more experience of their own individual child and the key thing that can be an issue here is sometimes that they either assume that behavior or changes that they're seeing are just normal that this is just what happens when particularly when kids hit adolescence we often miss things like depression um because we just think it's you know teenage behavior that the child is kind of off in their room and very quiet and not engaging anymore um but um they don't have those comparison points so often school are much more able to say ah well this child's behavior or or what we're seeing is is very different compared to their peers 
On the other hand, parents and carers often do have a great depth of expertise in their particular child. And those who have perhaps got a suspicion around a diagnosis or an issue that their child might be facing often have huge, huge reams of experience that they can bring to the table. And one of the things I've been looking at quite a bit lately is how do we in the school setting hear the voices of those expert parents? Because there is no one who can better reel off the research to you and the practical actions that could or should be taken than a parent who's taken up on it to learn about a condition that they feel their child might have so we need to enable those conversations I think I mean and that's the you know that's the art isn't it? about drawing together those two positions and taking the best of both to make it you know a, a, a child experience that um, is informed from two expert positions and it's really interesting as you're as you're talking you know certainly our experience in in our clinical life as well as anecdotally hearing the stories of teachers um, as young people are coming back into the classroom after lockdown and the different ways they're manifesting perhaps you know traumatic experiences that they have had during lockdown and how are they able to spot a young person in difficulty because a young person who's perhaps experienced domestic violence or um, a different form of really quite significant um, impact on their life might stop um, working might stop might start talking might you know, stop um, partaking in lunchtime stuff. You know, it could manifest in so many ways. And one of the conversations that Bettina and I have been having is, you know, is there too great a pull on, you know, teachers to have to spot those difficulties because, you know, they're educators, not mental health professionals. But what you're saying there is that, you know, it takes a village with the capacity to pull expertise from lots of areas. It's not quite an onerous task as it might be with, you know, a teacher as a lone person. Absolutely. And I think that we should never underestimate the importance of um, those working um, in, in school and other youth settings to pick up early on issues. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to expect them to fix this problem, to solve it. Sometimes it's about spotting those early warning signs. And sometimes, you know, they are able to offer the input and support that is needed uh, to support a child. And sometimes that in itself is enough if we pick things up early. But sometimes it's about them signposting on and, and working out what next it doesn't always have to kind of sit with them but the thing is that they are just so well placed to pick out the child who is having a bit of a different experience than their peers or the child where there has been significant change and we're really beginning to see an impact that worries us um, they're not always empowered to act and, and and that's one of the things that I work really hard on both when it comes to kind of mental health and special needs, but also around things like safeguarding. Quite often we get that kind of bystander effect. Everyone thinks someone else is doing something about it. So we need to think of mental health, well-being, these kinds of issues as being everyone's business and everyone knowing what they should do if they're worried. Do you think there's a danger that teachers are maybe being asked to take on more responsibility or too much for mental health? Yes and no. So no, in that they are so brilliantly placed to do it. And I've seen really good outcomes. And often there's a real keenness. So people who choose to work in the education profession um, are almost universally there in my experience because they really really care about children and I come across so many really fantastic practitioners in my work all the time who really want to make a difference and whether their key motivations are around the whole child or around academia or what have you we know that these things are all you know inextricably kind of interwoven um, and so I think there is a keenness often amongst staff to be able to get this right for their children. Um, I think that where there are issues are 
when we perhaps expect school staff to hold too much. So sometimes they, their job should be identifying and referring on, but sometimes there isn't somewhere to refer on to, for example. And that works differently in different settings. Some settings have got brilliant services within their setting that children can be referred to. And certainly, despite the kind of general rhetoric, there are some areas in which we've seen huge improvements in, in services for children and young people. So one of my areas of special interest is eating disorders. And I'm now in a position to pick up work I left 10 or so years ago around spotting the signs of eating disorders um, in school settings and training people up in that. 10 years ago, um, we found that we were able to help people spot the signs and there was nowhere to refer any kids to. Mm. Now there is. Um, and so it's really nice to be able to pick that work up confidently um, and know there's somewhere to go. But yeah, so going back to your original question, are we expecting them to take on too much? Yes and no. It's it's really big and it's really challenging, especially right now. And the kind of mental health and well-being of of teachers and school staff themselves is at an all time low. Um, the pandemic's hit us all yeah. really hard. And I, I worry about their well-being. But if we're able to do what we need to to support their well-being, I think they are in a uniquely brilliant position um, mm. to act as the adult that children often need. Yeah, and I suppose what's being rolled out at the moment is that there was a green paper, wasn't there, published a few years ago, and a mental health specialist will be in place in every school in the country. But that hasn't happened yet. It's being, it's happening at the moment, isn't it, over the next uh, year or so. That will be a great addition. Yeah, I think it's many years. Uh, so, yeah. Is it many exactly. years it's going to take? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it'll take time. And, and you know, that that green paper is something that I've been involved with for years, like since years before it was published, I, I you know, it, it was one of the things that in, encouraged me really to move from having that kind of higher level kind of political influencing campaigning kind of role to actually working much more closely on the front line and trying to influence practice every day, because it really frustrated me how many meetings over how many years to try and get this stuff to happen. And of course, now it's happening. It's amazing to be working with those teams on the ground and seeing them grow and seeing the impact they can have. But I'm an impatient person. And I know that if I train a thousand people today they can do something different tomorrow so that's kind of where I've gone with things yeah yeah you've taken a, a you know a dual approach you're top down and bottom up and you know surely at one point you know there'll be a perfect meeting and, and yeah. the mental health provision in schools will be complete yeah <laughs> that's a dream well, it's a nice dream. <laughs> we can dream we can dream one of the things actually that has become apparent to us when we've talked to schools um, and just really thinking there's a kind of generational difference, I think, in between um, kind of our understanding and awareness and acceptance of mental health. You know, this generation of young people compared to when we were their age or when parents were their age. And I think what parents sometimes struggle with is a child will come home and say, I can't, you know, do my homework because I have a mental health problem. And a parent is going, but wait a minute, what is a mental health problem? So we've definitely had schools, you know, say to us, you know, in your talk, can you help parents to unpick like what is normal kind of emotional variability in terms of what we would expect and what is a mental health problem? And I think that is a dilemma, isn't it? For parents in a way in which I think schools and parents can kind of have a partnership in helping to understand that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think education for everyone at every age is a really important part here. And one of the things that I find is that in my youth facing work, I am often working with children and young people whose emotional literacy is absolutely astounding. They are often very articulate about the challenges that they're facing. They're often really quite skilled in the different things that they might be able to do to help themselves, depending on you know what their experience at, at school has been largely. Um, but I often find that this is perhaps at odds 
odds with what some of the um, particularly more, you know, longer standing staff or some families might have. And sometimes there can be conflict between those, you know, two generations there. Um, and of course, there is tendency to um, kind of self-diagnose and perhaps over-medicalize some of these issues and I find sometimes it's helpful just to step away to be honest from all of those labels and just look at what's the day-to-day experience like and am I happy am I sad am I managing am I not what might I be able to do to, to help to support with that um, and, and look really for what we have in common rather than yeah always being quick to kind of slap a label on something and, and think that will make it better. Yeah, absolutely. Lucy Folks has written some great stuff about that. She's written a book about it, and there's a fantastic article in The Guardian I was reading recently where I think she, you know, kind of gives a bit of a framework for how to work that out really helpfully. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should always just return to, yeah, what will make a difference. And yeah, yeah regardless of a label, there's often simple actions that we can take or just by being present in someone's life often that can make a difference too you know and, and, and that's it again I, I often find that the the work that I do with children and young people where we're thinking together collaboratively about what would make a difference to them the ideas that are generated from the young people themselves are often some of the very best ones they often challenge yeah. our thinking as adults so Absolutely. I always find that yeah I've got to be prepared to like go quite right back to the drawing board um, and scrap stuff if they think it's rubbish but keeps me honest <laughs> yeah but but that that idea of using pure power, as it were, is absolutely phenomenal and certainly underpins so much of the adolescent br- brain literature. You know, we know that uh, the peer influence is much more interesting and powerful in the moment, certainly, than anything else an adult can say. And so, you know, and you talk about that in the book quite a lot, don't you, about saying, you know, the expert on the student is the student. Um, you know, that and that that's you know, being challenged and, you know, as you said, maybe sometimes some of the ideas are being pulled down by the students. Well, that's wonderful because there's something about that that makes them passionate. And perhaps that's something that might make a change in the in their school environment, which is what we're headed for. Yeah, towards. I think it makes us kind of revise somehow how we approach some things so one of the very boring things that I find myself coming back to all the time about you know how we can have a big impact on mental health and well-being is sleep you know sleep is the most important thing and both our adults and our children are often kind of chronically sleep deprived and you know we can teach them a PSHG lesson on the importance of sleep but they're not going to feel it it's not going to make any difference if they've got the drawer of social media or a game that they're really enjoying or whatever they might be doing that's keeping them up at night but if we can help them really engage with the topic and actually understand the science behind it what does happen to your brain when you're sleep deprived let's experiment what happens if you've had a really good night's sleep how do you feel differently and actually really involve them in that then we often find that young people who do see that impact will be really good champions and yeah just generally find young people listen to other young people more to be honest yeah it's about how we have those conversations with with teenagers isn't it you know it needs to be much more collaborative and respectful of their ideas as you say and respectful in giving them the knowledge and saying well what do you think you know the impact of sleep not only on you know memory but also on emotions our ability to regulate emotions is so powerful isn't it and if if you say to a young person you know do you want your do emotionally feel better and they say yes you say well the first thing to do is sleep and they might go okay maybe I will you know put my phone in the other room has a different emphasis I agree I think that's it and I think it is about yeah as you say exactly respecting them and empowering them and just allowing them to be really curious about it because I think if we say you will feel better if you do this but if instead we say I'm really curious about this this the, the research suggests that you know if you were to give yourself a bit of a break and have a really good night's sleep that you might find that tomorrow it's a little bit easier to control your anger or um 
you know regulate how you're feeling and just be really curious with them and maybe go on that journey together as well because so often as adults we're talking to our children about the importance of sleep and we're massively sleep deprived ourselves and so I think learning together is really powerful there as well but I think the other thing there just to you know teenagers are brilliant and yeah I love them. I love my work with teenagers more than probably any other work that I do. I learn so much from them and they have yeah, so much to give. And so often they're just kind of forgotten by society or judged really harshly. And I don't know, I think especially right now when you look at the change that young people are trying to have in the world and they're holding us to account around things like the climate and yeah I just think they're great and and yeah providing a platform for them is is really important we we couldn't agree more it was one of our one of the key um remits really of the incredible teenage brain book was to say look we have to re-understand what what you know what young people are doing and why they act in the way they do in some instances and how wonderful they are because yeah. you know anybody who actually does have day-to-day contact with young people loves them you know they're an extraordinary mm. group of incredibly passionate uh, considerate thoughtful young people and it's a real privilege to be around um you know teenagers i think anyone who works with teenagers will say the same thing so um yeah we couldn't agree more with that idea of reframing mm and re-delivering the teenage years is a positive time. It's a time for experimentation and, uh, yeah, with the sleep thing, you know, well, go and test it. Why don't you go and try it out? Ooh. Come back and tell us, yeah. <laughs> I do think there's something to be said just as a, as a PS to prescribe staying up all night and come yeah. back and tell me, you know, because you know, there's right. nothing, you know, for a teenager, they need to experiment and find out themselves. Um, you know, it's just the way that their brain is wired. They need to explore Mm -hmm. and discover so have a night where you have no sleep whatsoever and let's talk about that and discuss it as a group because I think that's what you know because is it but maybe not discuss it as a group the day after when (laughs) (laughs) a whole group of sleep deprived people may be quite a heady mix right a spicy soup as we might say all right um your book is so rich with you know, ideas, there's lots of space, literal space in the book for self-reflection, which, you know, we were actually talking about this yesterday, Um, you know, teachers really need some supervision space, and that's a sort of self-guided supervision. We know that as part of that, uh, teachers have a really full-on schedule, and they may not be able to read your book cover to cover, although you do give permission to dip in and out and go where you like. (laughs) I like that. It was very nice. Um, In our new book, How to Have Incredible Conversations with Your Child, we come back to one theme again and again, and that is good relationship skills will unlock positive well-being, physical, good health, and many other great outcomes for a lifetime. So if you had to pick just one theme (laughs) from the book that teachers could operationalize in the context of their school, what do you think that would be? Do you know, boringly, I think I'd go for exactly the same theme that you've picked and focused on with your book. In my experience, the thing that everybody, children and adults alike, but, you know, especially I'm, I'm always thinking about the child, uh, they need to feel seen and heard. They need to feel a sense of belonging and community and to know that their voice actually matters and that there are ways um, to, to get it across. And that doesn't always look like talking and listening like this, but yeah, feeling really, really heard by the, by the people around them. Um, and the, you know, the, the work that I do, the more that I learn, the more that I realise that huge huge amounts of kind of increased knowledge and experience and all those things makes me realize actually how simple what we need to do is at the very heart of it and that we're all capable of doing it 
Um, so yeah, I think that, yeah, those relationships, they matter more than absolutely anything else in my humble opinion. And I can't wait to read your new book. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's interesting because I think as we move, as you know, the science is moving forward in terms of, it's not kind of fuzzy science to think about relationships. It's not, you know, there, there can be lots of sort of disparaging ideas about focusing on relationships. But actually, if we look at very basic science and the neuroscience, it matters in all sorts of domains. And I think it's neither boring nor simple, but it <laughs> is a really important message. And actually, as Bettina and I were reviewing the literature, you know, of course, we knew to a broad extent the power of relationships. But actually, when you dig deep into the literature, these positive relationships, whether they're in a school, whether they're in the staff room, uh, you know, whether they're in the family, will predict such wonderful outcomes. You know, it, it, we're looking at academic success and how that might be predicted by good relationship skills. So whatever the question is, the answer is a good relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great, it's quite, it's, you know, it's, it gives us all the focus, whatever our book or whatever our setting, you know, we, it, relationship skills are something to work on. Absolutely. And I think that the the thing that I find really heartening is the way that the research is going now and understanding that the, the brain is amazing. I love the brain, but how it is plastic throughout our lifetime. And actually, we can always make a difference. And every single time that we enable a child to have a positive experience, actually, that's helping to, to reroute things. And obviously, the more that that can be rerouted, uh, the, the more that can be repeated, then the more that rerouting happens. But it's a really incredible thing. And I think that's really heartening for people to know who are working with or caring for children and young people who might be really facing challenges and where perhaps their behaviour is more challenging for us, for them. But knowing that every time that we respond in a kind and caring and nurturing way, that we're helping, literally helping to to rewire their brain. I think the other thing that um, sort of draws on that idea is when you talk to people who've been through difficult times but somehow succeeded anyway and and you know success can be classed in many different ways but when I talk to people and they reflect on their experiences I'm trying to think of any occasion where anyone has not talked about a person as the thing that made a difference very very rarely you know would we think about a sort of situation or a place it's it's usually about the the people there and not normally about the um you know, the, the the therapist, the clinician, the doctor, often it will be the, the, the teaching assistant, the friend's mum, you know, someone who just connected um, and made a real difference. Yeah, you're so right. Well, and what I love about your book and all um, is that it really operationalizes that this because I think a lot of people will say, yeah, yeah, you know, I know relationships are important, but we don't necessarily pay attention to the things that we automatically do and say that maybe don't support relationships in a positive way. We're also interviewing Karen Traceman, um, you know, who's done a lot uh, on this podcast series and. You know, similarly, her work is similarly saying, let's think about what's going on in the organization, what's on on the walls. Let's think about the language. Let's think about in the detail so people can really get behind it. Because I think a lot of schools and organization have unbeknowingly, is that a word? We'll go with it. We'll go with it. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> unknowingly. Um, <laughs> um, you know, kind of done things that maybe don't support positive relationships and don't realise it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think in particular, our response to behaviour. So um, how we work with children whose behaviour is distressing or challenging or makes it more difficult for school to happen in a regular way um, can have a huge impact on those individual children. And it's really difficult and it's a really hot topic um, at the moment. But one of the things that has interested me, I suppose, in the way that my work has perhaps changed direction or sort of morphed over the years is that behavior has become such a key part of it because working with schools they need to be able to support all of their children all the time and the thing that most often gets in the way is behavior and whilst some um, ways of approaching this is about kind of control and kind of yeah behavior management I'm always much more curious and thinking what's actually going on here for this child and how can we support them um, to enable this behaviour perhaps to be understood um, and then ultimately to change. And I learn most here from colleagues who are working in alternative provision um, and sometimes in special settings as well, where actually they take a very different approach, a much more therapeutic approach uh, on the whole. And often we find that children who were unable to do what was needed of them and expected of them sometimes in a mainstream setting and where they may have had many adults who've kind of given up on them and, and don't think it's possible um, for them to to thrive that actually put in a different setting we often see those children it takes a while there's a lot of trust that needs to be rebuilt there but they're very very capable actually and uh, mm. having adults around them who are curious about what's going on for them and who respond with care and kindness can make a real difference but it's a controversial topic because not everybody agrees on this one but yeah I feel pretty strongly on it we do <laughs> we agree <laughs> yeah absolutely so just I mean just thinking about um the case studies we were talking about the case studies earlier and we've got some case studies in our book and um I've got lots of really good feedback and in particular I remember we sent to our editor Amy we sent the first case study and we said you know here's the case and this is um a good outcome and she said can you also put like what might get in the way like what would a bad mm -hmm. outcome look like which was actually really valuable feedback so we wondered you know in your experience of working with schools what do you think gets in the way of schools supporting mental health and well-being in children Oh, that's a great question. And just to kind of step outside of that question a moment, this is one of the things that I feel really passionate about in all of my teaching and working with people is we've got to own our mistakes um, and own when we're overcoming stuff and own when stuff doesn't work, because I think we learn so much from that. And often we hide it and we're all about presenting this kind of perfect airbrush version of things and showing what works. But when I'm um, commissioning training, I'm always saying to people and tell us what didn't go well. We need other people to be able to learn from from the mistakes as well and I, I'm trying to lean much harder into that um, but so in terms of what what sometimes doesn't go well here sometimes I will find myself working with or talking to schools or settings where there are one person or a core of people who really want to make a difference here but where the leadership um, perhaps aren't on board and um, so they might find themselves kind of in an environment where the yeah, general sort of prevailing mood is not one of um, the whole child and, and supporting mental health and emotional well-being. Um, that can be really, really challenging. And so I try always to think in my work about how can an individual make a difference, even if perhaps you're not in a, in a situation where you can impact on the whole organisation. I also really love thinking with individuals who might be able to try and influence change, to think with them about, well, how does your agenda here align with your body? 
boss's agenda? What are they trying to do? And what are you trying to do? And where's the commonality there? Because if we can say how what we're trying to do will help them to meet their aims too. So maybe they're looking to increase attendance or achievement. Okay, great. Here's how what we want to do here will help with that. Let's prove it. Um, so that's that's a key barrier is where people aren't on the same page. The next one is confidence. So I work with amazing people all the time. And in particular, people like school nurses, um, learning support staff are so, so skilled at supporting children and young people, but they don't know it. They, they do it all day, every day. And I'm teaching them stuff that's usually been told to me by other people like them. Um, and often they have developed their own resources and ideas and, and ways of doing all this stuff. But they, they don't realise what an amazing job they're doing. And they, they're worried that they'll make things worse or, or get it wrong, particularly when it comes to things like self-harm. So my main job there becomes one of actually just building their confidence and empowering them really to kind of do what they're doing and maybe give them a few labels for what they're doing maybe explain the science behind why what they're doing really works why that very very empathetic support staff member has found that when they kind of just sit with and care for a child who is really struggling that things seem to get better explaining to them what's happening for that child and why they should keep doing it and yeah really empowering them and then I think that the final one is is time so you know staff are so stretched and having this agenda added on top of everything else can just feel like too much and I think we do have to invest time at the beginning to make sure we've got a clear roadmap to make sure we are on the same page but ultimately I think it is time saving um often really simple stuff like when we think about helping our children to emotionally regulate after a break time or a lunch time taking five minutes out of our lesson when we're really pushed for time might feel like time we don't have but if those five minutes mean that every child in the room is then engaged and ready to learn and able to hear what's being said to them, then actually I think it's time really well spent. And the whole school approach is kind of that on a on a grander scale. And I think the other thing that people find really reassuring is that particularly with the relationship stuff, so the kinds of things that you're thinking about, those conversations that really make a difference and how to really connect with people, it's not about the amount of time that you put in it's about the, the quality so the quality rather than the quantity of that time and I think helping people to really build connections and really lean into those relationships so that the small time that they have is really really well spent I think is really important I couldn't agree more I think sometimes we talk a lot with um well we talk a lot with everybody about just the importance <laughs> of empathy and validating and I think teachers have said to me in the past I don't have time and I say, it just takes a moment, a moment of putting your hand on their shoulder and saying, I can see you're really struggling, just do your best or whatever it is. Um, it, that Just that moment can just make all the difference, can't it? Absolutely. And I think that we have to just remember that for some of our children and young people, they don't have any good kind of connections and meaningful interactions in their life. I spoke with a young person recently who... Um, uh, they were struggling. They were um, uh, having questions around their their gender and things felt really, really hard and they felt kind of alienated and unheard at home and they didn't really have many friends um, and they, they just didn't kind of connect much. And a member of staff in their school had kind of connected with them um, but didn't give them lots of time. But just every time they had passed would just smile in the corridor, just notice them. And this young person just talked about how they just began to feel like they mattered to someone. And, and it really was as simple as that, like a glance across the corridor, a smile, a nod. I've noticed you. You exist in my world. You matter to me. And again, sometimes when we return from, you know, lockdowns or, or periods of holiday and things, being able to say to a child, 
I, I, you know, I, I heard this song that we talked about in class and it made me think of you. Children knowing that they've been held in mind by someone, that can make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah children huge. need to know they matter. It's such a powerful, I mean, these are interventions that are, you know, are so powerful and letting, you know, letting school staff, whether they be, you know, teaching staff or, or support staff or, you know, school nurses know how powerful they are and how powerful their nods, eye contact and little micro moments can be to young people, I think is so important. Um, it, I think it's, you know, it, it, it validates their time and energy with young people, but it also really will improve the quality of those interactions. And as we know, young people in the teenage years are so much more attuned to nonverbal communication. So actually, it doesn't need to be a long conversation. A moment or a look is enough and it can be used very positively. So I, I think those comments about um, what can really make a difference are enormously powerful I think they're very thought-provoking and I think there's there's good evidence as well isn't there maybe you can you 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 can add to this because you'll know it much better than me but my understanding of the evidence is that actually kind of multiple shorter interactions are actually more powerful in terms of laying down those kind of neural pathways and, and reinforcing them than what perhaps giving a big chunk of time and that our time is perhaps better well spent just having those micro moments again and again and again Absolutely. I think, you know, it's laying down that circuit and it's it's yeah. forming a habit for everybody, for, you mm. know, somebody who who's the staff member or somebody who's the young person. And, it, and it's a very, very powerful intervention, as I say. I think that's that's great advice. Well, I think we may have reached towards the end of our time. So I was going to ask our last hurrah question, Pookie, if you wouldn't mm. mind. Now, in our experience, I think Bettina would agree with me, writing a, a book is a real learning experience. You learn about the literature and the science and what a privilege that is as an author, what a great privilege that is. But also you learn about yourself, your writing process. We were talking about a little bit about that earlier, weren't we, um, off, off air. You've written seven books, I think. I, I can't right. count. Yeah, I, I think seven. it's seven. I think I counted <laughs> seven. So this is the latest one. So from you know, drawing on all your experiences from this last book, what did you learn? What's your takeaway from the experience of writing this last book? I can I reflect on the one I've just written, which yes, is you can reflect yet. on anything. So like. the the book that I've just written. So we were talking off air. I, I wrote this most recent book in a week. Um, and the most recent book I wrote was very different than all my other books because it was much more kind of personal. Um, so it's a series of lessons and each chapter basically is a lesson that I've learned in life and um, by getting things wrong. And I found it was a really deeply humbling process, just stopping and thinking about all the teachers in my life. And I mean, teacher in the broadest sense of the word, um, friends, professionals, young people, people who I have encountered who have changed how I think and do things. And the thing I think I learned most in the process of writing that book was a the power of just being human and being re real and authentic and being a little bit more brave and vulnerable so I've kind of people often want to know more about my story and I often shy away from that a little bit and I share more kind of I don't know I, I distance myself a little bit and in this book I've, I've gone a bit more about me because I've been asked for it a lot um, but I think the other thing is just about a willingness always to learn and being prepared to have got things wrong I've got so many things really really wrong and I think that that's okay 
as long as we are able to forgive ourselves and we're able to put that energy not into looking backwards and hanging on to kind of guilt and shame and anger about what we might not have got right in the past but instead looking forwards and using um, what we now know to the best of our knowledge to make a difference in our own lives and in the lives of the people that we are working with or, or caring for so exercising a little kindness and looking forwards. <laughs> I mean, that's a really inspirational position. and But I think it really typifies your approach because you're very, you know, you are such an expert in the broader sense and your your words and ideas are very clearly impactful. And at the same time, I know that you you are generous about saying these are my experiences and this is where I, you know, slipped up. And I think that's something that's so refreshing. You can be an expert and make a mistake. Those things are not mutually exclusive. And the way you're describing that book, may I ask what it's called? Do you have a title yet? It kind of keeps on uh, changing, actually. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's something like oh, you're, you're putting me on the spot now. I'll tell you. Afterwards. Oh well, look. Do you know it's something what? like lessons in like things I got wrong, so you don't have to. It's something along those lines. Um, well, I'm buying but, that uh, one. That sounds yeah. magnificent. Really, really inspirational. As ever, Pookie, as you ever are, um, an inspiration to so many people in so many settings. And we're so grateful that you spent some time sharing your wisdom and ideas and reflections. It's been a real pleasure for us. And, th- and thank you ever so much. And thanks for all the work that, that you're doing. And, you know, it's, it's it's one of the things that I find myself reflecting on often at the moment is how many amazing individuals there are who are working in this field right now and how we might all have our different approaches and our different backgrounds and our different, you know, slightly different motivations sometimes. But right at the heart of it is actually trying to make a difference to the children and young people. And I think that the, the key thing is that we learn better to collaborate and I think that's something that's really come through the pandemic that in the past often there was this feeling almost of competition but actually we yeah we we all we all kind of yeah rise up by lifting each other and and it's yeah wonderful to be part of such a great network so thank you too (laughs) well thank Thank you. you so much in the next episode we discuss how to engage vulnerable young people using the power of relationships to improve their outcomes and change their life trajectory with passionate and compassionate Vanessa Rogers, youth worker, trainer and consultant, and author of Gangs, Guns and Knives. Mm-hmm.